On this episode, we'll speak with steel pen builder, tuner, and panist Ryan Roberts from Manette Instruments about his life in pan and how to properly commission the making of your own pans for personal and educational use. Are you a steel pan lover? A pan jumbie? Are you looking for a special gift for you and your pan jumbie friends? PanJumbiestore.com has just the thing. We have steel pan theme items specially designed with you in mind. Clothing, accessories, mugs, and even drink tumblers to hold your favorite drink at that next pan line or event. Check out PanJumbiestore at PanJumbiestore.com. That's P-A-N-J-U-M-B-I-E-S-T-O-R-E.com. PanJumbiestore.com. Steel pan themed clothing and accessories for the steel band lovers worldwide. Yo, 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 let's try a couple here. We don't know. Hey, everybody, uh, welcome back to Strike Up. Uh, I'm your host, Ted Goslin. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief and publisher of Penn Magazine. And uh, today, uh, I'm going to be talking with a unique individual who's had quite a unique experience uh, with building pans, learning from uh, Dr. Ellie Manette, the late great uh, pen builder from Trinidad and Tobago, but um, also uh, establishing his own reputation and uh, experience with steel pen, Mr. Ryan Roberts. Ryan, welcome to the show. How's it going? Not too bad, man. Thanks for having me on here. I uh, I can now say I'm a fan of the podcast. I past couple of days I actually listened to every episode you've got, so I'm caught up now. We had a bad <laughs> snowstorm, so I had a lot of time on my hands. Oh yeah, I bet. Well, thanks for joining today. Um, I I think um, probably a lot of people might be interested in hearing this, uh, given your unique experience working with uh, the late great. Uh, Ellie Manette and, um, you know, quite, kind of what you got out of that experience. But first, I'd like to just to learn a little bit about you. Um, uh, where are you from and and how did you first get involved with music? All right. um, I'm originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I started playing Pam <clears throat> through the Rhythm Project, so through Dave Longfellow. At the time, uh, Dr. Anthony Haley was the director of Rhythm Project, as well as Ben Meyer. And I wound up being in Rhythm Project for about seven years. It's uh, three years in middle school, so sixth through eighth grade. Then when you hit high school, you audition for the premier group, which is the Rhythm Project All-Stars. Um, I wound up getting in there. Um, the year I got into there, that's kind of when Anthony Haley went into creating Mosaic Steel Orchestra, which is another group I was a part of in Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area. Um, and that's when Dave Longfellow and Sophia Subero was in there at one point. And I worked all through my high school career through Rhythm Project and Mosaic. Around the age of 16, I started developing an interest in learning how uh, to make these drums, how to tune them and whatnot. And uh, Dr. Anthony Haley actually got his i believe his doctorate at wvu so he worked with ellie when ellie was still at the university and same thing with dave uh dave went to wvu so he also had that connection with ellie so i kind of feel like that was the first stepping stones into getting my foot in the door um and then in 2012 mosaic was invited to be a guest artist at ellie minutes festival of steel which was held at the stonewall resort about an hour and change south of here um that was the second time i got to meet ellie the first time i got to meet him uh, mosaic in 2008 was asked to play at jmu's steel band concert as a guest artist as well and uh, ellie was the guest speaker there as well so i got to meet him for the first time so the second time in 2012 i was actually able to talk to him for a little while and express my interest in learning how to make these and um, we kind of talked for a little bit we exchanged numbers with uh, him as well as with Eric Fountain who was there at the time and within a year from 2012 to 2013 I started really communicating my interest and in coming up to Morgantown and kind of learning how to make these drums and 2013 I kind of started 
making that transition up here, which was definitely interesting because I was, you know, 20, 19 or 20 years old. And this is my first time leaving the house. And not only am I leaving home, but I'm moving 400 miles to a town I've never been to. I uh, don't really know anybody there. I don't have any family anywhere near Morgantown. And I did it just for the sole purpose of I wanted to learn how to tune from Ellie. Um, he was definitely one of my idols. And so to have the opportunity to go and be able to learn from him was definitely a big, uh, big deal for me. So in my mind, I was like, all right, that's worth uprooting and moving to a town I've never been to. <laughs> and uh, from there on, I kind of just started staying with Ellie whenever he came to the shop. Uh, he would usually work nights. So Chandler Bailey and Ellie would come in about five, six o'clock at night, and they would work till like one in the morning, two in the morning. Ellie was a night owl. Like he drank coffee and he'd be like, let's go. And he'd just start working on drums. And back in those days, um, I didn't really do production work because the way it works at the shop is if you're apprenticing, um, you have to prove that you have got the picture in your head in regards to the build of the drum and tuning of the drum. So high standards. So back in those days, I would have to buy a barrel whenever we did a barrel run. I'd buy a barrel at the time. It was like 130 $140 for full barrel, uh, double end, so I can make like either two leads or a set of seconds. And the first set of drums I wanted to make was a set of seconds. So Ellie would help me step by step learning how to do, you know, make them and finding that right shape. Uh, needless to say, those drums didn't survive. <laughs> I, uh, I hacked them up pretty good, which anybody does when they're trying to learn a new craft. Um, I do remember the first time I got to sync a drum, I wasn't allowed to touch the air tools. I had to sync the drum by hand. So you're holding a four pound, maybe five pound sledgehammer that's shaped to be a uh, building hammer. And you're just going at the drum for hours. And I remember Ellie telling me, you need to take a break. Every couple of passes you do, you need to put the hammer down, take like a couple minutes. I had so much ambition of doing this that I was just pushing through it. Like I just kept trying to go and go. And it got to the point where like my hand locked up and I had to pry my fingers open <laughs> off the hammer. Um, that was fun. <laughs> um, it's all scar tissue now though, but you know, it, the first couple years when I was starting to apprentice under Ellie, <clears throat> I already had somewhat of a tuning experience down. Um, I tried to teach myself how to do it in the beginning. Not a smart idea. Uh, unless if you have an old drum that you don't worry about potentially ruining um so i i kind of understood how to tune leads um i i spent about a week with steve laurie um a year before i came here uh, he did like a week-long tuners workshop or like tuning workshop and uh at the time you know i wasn't at ellie's shop or learning from every anybody so i was like i need to do this so I spent a week with Steve. So Steve kind of gave me the fundamentals of the language that was developed in terms of what parts of the note, you know, the neck, the, the long axis, the short axis, the apex, which is the high point of the note, the physical high point. And uh, from there, I kind of started getting Ellie's point of view on tuning. And over time, in the beginning, Ellie had his own language, <clears throat> which a lot of anybody who's learned from Ellie or has watched Ellie tune, Ellie has like these code words that he's developed over the years for tuning pinch, pull, rock, uh, all these kind of, and they all mean something specifically. And anybody that's studied under him eventually figures out that language. And then when he's, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to rock the octave down back in the beginning, I had no idea what that meant. Um, over time, I, by watching him, I kind of figured it out what he meant by that. And then, you know, pinching the note from the front, 
you're taking away body from the front of the note, which raises everything up and all sorts of different code terms that he had. And learning how to tune from him in the beginning and hearing him say all these codes, the best way, I don't know, analogy for it would be, it's like he's teaching me algebra trig, but I don't know basic algebra. <laughs> so that's when I would start listening to Keith Moon, who's at the shop, or Robbie Davis, who's the head tuner at the shop now. Um, they would be able to pull me aside and show me what Ellie meant. Same thing with Chandler. They'd show me like, okay, this is what Ellie meant by that. And we just kind of kept going trial and error with it because I, I had the ambition to do it, but it, it was such a hard craft at the time. Like it, it's like doing a puzzle. Every note, there's something else going on and you have to figure out you know, what does that node need? You know, does it need more shape? All these sorts of things. And it takes years to develop the intuition to kind of figure that out, which is another reason why it was difficult to learn how to tune from Ellie, because a lot of the times, whenever he was tuning a note, it's all intuition. So his, his mind's moving a million miles a minute. And at the same time, he's trying to communicate with you what he's doing. And you can't really understand at the beginning. But then after a while, as I, you know, started to learn more and I started making production drums or at least tuning production drums, I was starting to beat him to the punch. Like whenever I'd be sitting there watching him tune, I would tell him what to do next. And he would look at me and start laughing because like I'm finally starting to pick it up. And it just kept going from there um, up until about 2018. That's kind of when he started slowing down. Gotcha. Yeah, that must have been something else, uh, getting to know him and understanding kind of his code and messaging. Um, did you get that, aside from the guys that you worked to, you know, from the shop and did you get that from anybody else in terms of like um, that there was a learning curve and, and it, that uh, others that had worked with Ellie um, had to learn in the same way? Um, yes. Um, even before... I came up here or at least started a line of communication into coming up here. Um, I used to pick the minds of like Glenn Rousey or Billy Sheeter, Darren Dyke, all from, you know, Ellie's camp from back in the nineties when Ellie first came to WVU, Alan Coyle, all of them. I would kind of pick their mind as much as I could because when I was young, I was just, I was obsessed with it. Like I, to this day, I'm still obsessed with it, but like, it's, it's one of those things, like, I'm sure a lot of people already know about the Jumbie and whatnot. And I caught that the moment I started playing a drum in middle school, going back to when I was with the Rhythm Project, the moment I saw this chrome lead, and it was a Manette chrome lead too. Um, the moment I saw it, even before I hit the drum, I fell in love with it. And so like, after that, it was basically, I wanted to pick the mind of anyone I could, because at that time, I didn't know how to get a hold of Ellie. I didn't know if that was even possible. So I just kind of went up the chain of command to try to just pick the mind and see how much information I can get. And I remember Billy telling me it was him and Darren that were the ones that um, figured Ellie's little language code words out and started to teach it to newer uh, apprentices so they could understand it. Um, so I kind of got a little bit of a head start with Billy and Darren or and Glenn um, and Darren too. So even with that warning <laughs> of the, the codes and all that, uh, it was still, it was still difficult to figure out. Was there any kind of, I mean, well, I'm kind of curious about the process of how you first became his apprentice. Um, what was that like that? Did you, did you approach him or um, did you kind of go through someone else? It was um, so going back to 2012 when he had his festival at the Stonewall, um, that was the second time I met him. And that was the, 
perfect moment because he wasn't surrounded by people asking questions and whatnot. Um, and I basically just started talking to him, telling him how interested I am in learning how to tune these drums and make these drums. And, you know, he was telling me, uh, it's, you know, it's a long road, you know, it's not an easy craft to learn. You have to have dedication to it. Uh, you have to just be motivated for it. And I told him, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I want to know. Um, I've already destroyed my tenor pan back home. <laughs> I still have my tenor pan too. It's at the shop. I keep it in my room just as a reference of where I've been or where I came from versus where I am now. Cause you look at that drum and it's an old gill pan from like 2002 and there's burn marks in the chrome you can see half moon marks from hammers and all that and it i showed him that drum too and he looked at me and just laughed saying you really messed that drum up <laughs> but it was um it was one of those things where he saw the ambition that i had by that conversation and we kept in touch after that a little bit um i talked to eric fountain a lot too because he was the one that was like this is what you need to do to get up here um the shop's not going to pay you for it. you don't do you're gonna have to find a job find housing and whatnot so that took like about a year because even after that second meeting with ellie which i felt like was the opening of that potential apprenticeship um I had to go home and think because I was a still a young kid at the time. So I had to go home and think like, do I really want to do this? Do I, you know, I've, I've never been to Morgantown before. And after a lot of thinking and talking to my family, you know, we, we all decided that it was a good move for me for what I uh, wanted to do. And 2013, I started to make my way up here. <clears throat> and then when I made my way up here, you know, I got a job laid down and uh, Eric Fountain was actually getting ready to leave the company and move to Florida. Um, so there was an opening, I guess you would say. Um, and from there on, uh, the majority of my apprenticeship in the very beginning was Keith. So Keith is the main builder at the shop. The majority of the drums that come out of the shop now are built by Keith. Um, he also oversees all of the builds from everybody else. Myself, Cody Lyles, who's the new shop apprentice. Um, he'll overlook those as well. Same thing with Rob. So Robbie will do what Ellie used to do, which is he'll check every drum before and after chrome or paint, and then they'll ship it out. And so the beginning of the apprenticeship I was with, Keith and Ellie would check in on me and I would sit in on those late nights and watch him tune. And, um, I would pick things up here and there, but in the very beginning, it was a hard transition into, um, learning how to make these drums because it, it building drums, it takes a huge physical toll on you, especially in the beginning. Cause you're not, used to doing what you need to do even with the air tools it's pretty difficult to use them in the beginning and um because of that uh the beginning of my apprenticeship was kind of rough it was really just kind of sitting with ellie and watching in tune and just talking to him um it probably took me about two years to um build a drum uh, i started making leads uh, i would make painted leads i think i made a couple chrome leads but i wouldn't tune them so i either ellie would take it and he would tune it from scratch and then we'd send it to a customer or uh, keith would take it chandler would take it robbie and eventually i would start tuning the inner notes because the rim notes at the time were I don't know why, but it, there was like a barrier, a mental block transitioning from how to make the inner note the same as a, the outer note. 
Um, so I would tune the inner notes and uh, Ellie would finish the drum. And we just kept kind of doing that until I was able to understand through Ellie how to tune all the rim notes going down. And then from leads, I started going down to doubles, then down to triples and so on and so forth. So ultimately, you would, would you say that that it's um, that that was the way to go in terms of how one would really generally learn how to tune and build drums is you start with a tenor pan and you work, work your way to the other instruments? Um, I kind of agree with that too. It's the same thing with learning how to play pan in terms of touch. If you start on lead or tenor, um, you have to learn how delicate to hit some of the notes. And as you work your way down into the lower range, you've already developed that, that sensitive touch because when you get down to bass, you know, if you lay into those way too hard, you know, they're going to bark back at you. But if you have already figured out how to properly play the pan, it kind of gets easier as you go down the line. In terms of tuning and building, I also think it's the same thing, mainly because leads are, they can be very difficult to build and tune. Because if you think about it, you're putting 32 notes in one drum. So there's not that much space around each note. And you have to prep all of that steel around the note perfectly. Because if you think about it, all that steel, the interstitial steel is what we call it. Um, the interstitial steel is like the string on a guitar. If there's no tension around the whole note, it's all floppy, out of tune and whatnot. But if all the tension is perfectly put, pinned down, that's when you get like a nice clear note. Um, and that is, that on leads is difficult because, like I said, you're putting so many notes in one drum. And then on top of that, tuning it, tuning the high notes for me wasn't too bad. I had that little dog whistle pitch you can hear in your ear. Um, it, I didn't have it immediately in the beginning, but I started developing fast. And it really was just going back to those nights with Ellie where he would take, we would have these little different screwdrivers to hear those higher partials. Um, and he would hit the back of the note and hear, he would say, this is the second octave. And at the time it's, I'm hearing metal tone. But then after a while, when you start to dissect and hear that particular metal tone he's talking about, then I started to tune those high notes and then starting going down. Um, going back to like how when I started being allowed to build production leads, I would tune the inner notes and pass it on to Ellie to finish the drum and work my way down. Um, because then when you get down to seconds, it's the same range, just some more low notes. And then that's when you start to understand in tuning the lower notes, the anatomy of the note is the same from lead to bass. It's about how you approach the note in terms of what Ellie would call how long you have to play with a note until it breaks that tension. And then we set it into pitch because what we do is we'll bubble the note up really high and then burn it <clears throat> and quench it. So it just, it shocks and it's like hard. And then we'll take the hammer and we'll just kind of bounce it along the note, depending on how high the note is or low we'll bounce it until we feel that tension break within the hammer stroke and then we'll set the note um and if you work from leads going down you kind of figure that out because high notes you don't have to do that you can immediately start to shape them into pitch but when you get down to low notes you kind of have to finesse them a little longer especially with basses i've seen ellie tune basses from scratch where he would take his wide hammer and just bounce it bounce it around the note for about a couple minutes and eventually you start to hear the pitches of that note start to go down and when it reaches a certain point then all of a sudden he goes from bouncing to setting those octave points and harmonics and uh, i've worked my way down to guitars i have not done a set of bass yet kind of looking forward to that this year i'm kind of hoping i'm able to tune a set of bass guitars are fun to tune too 
um, those low notes. Cause like I said, when you, when you figure out how much you need to play and finesse the note into pitch, it starts to become like a fun challenge. Like you're, you're trying to wait, when's that moment going to hit? And then when you hear that moment, you, you just go for it. How long have you been building pens? Uh, since I came here, uh, late 2013, uh, before them, I didn't have any resources to make a drum. There was one time I was still living back home in Virginia. A friend of mine was like, Hey, I've got a neighbor who's throwing away a 55 gallon barrel. Do you want to, I was like, sure. Why not? I, you know, at the time, I don't know that there's a specific, you know, type of gauge steel to use and all that stuff. I'm just like free barrel. So I bring the barrel home and uh, I clean it up because it's a little rusty. And I went to Harbor Freight and I just bought sledgehammers. Again, did not know that ha these hammers need to be shaped. I did not know that. I literally thought it was cut the handle off and just go. Um, so I did that and I got it down about five inches, a five inch bowl before it started cracking and it started cracking because the unshaped heads, they had like a sharp edge on the hammers and they kept eating into the steel. So you're creating these little weak spots of half moons and eventually those half moons are going to split open. Um, after that, I kind of stopped. I didn't, I didn't tr attempt to make any drums until I came here. So it was, um, it was a fun learning experience. Uh, the neighbors weren't very happy with it. <laughs> it was kind of loud because I was just in the backyard. I didn't, I didn't have any, I had hearing protection on, so I couldn't understand how loud it was, but uh, I did have to apologize to the neighbors when I did that. <laughs> how, how long did Ellie tell you initially that it would take to kind of go from being apprentice to, you know, on your own as a pen builder? Um, he never really gave me a set time. I've kind of figured out that the average time to have the picture in your head, as Ellie would say, is about five years. Um, I always like to tell anybody that's interested in learning how to build these drums. It's like going away to college. You know, it's, it's a trade. You're going to a trade school and it takes four to five years, depending on if you have prior experience or if you're, you know, pan building 101, you know, it, it, it'll be about four to five years because I always felt like the, the uh, idea of the trade of pan building is 50% book smart, 50% street smarts. So the street smarts is the intuition that you learn throughout your years perfecting this craft, which I truly think to become like a master, like Ellie, it's a lifetime um, dedication to learn. Cause even up to the last year, Ellie was alive. He was still figuring stuff out tuning and little things. And he'd come in and be like, Ryan, Robbie, look at, look at this note. And he'll play the note and the note just, it has so much strength and clarity and it just, that high point and that spark. And, you know, we're like, damn, Ellie, that's, that sounds amazing. And he'll point out what he did and it'll be something very simple. Like he made the second octave 13 cents sharp on the strobe versus the whole note or something little. And what he would do is if he found one note did that, he would try to do it to two or three more notes. And sometimes it wouldn't work on the other notes. So even though it's about five years, I feel like it takes about five years to develop a quality that would be good enough for any pan professional to play. Um, but if you want to get to like the level of where Ellie was, it's, it's a lifetime of learning because like I said, even up to the last years of his life, he was still learning how tuning works you know there's still certain things that drums do that i cannot explain or he could explain 
skirt tone is one. Um, a lot of drums have, well, not a lot, every drum has a skirt tone. Sometimes the tone can be really close to a particular note. Other times it's not. I do remember this was about two months ago. I was finishing up a set of painted seconds. They were like an Aggie maroon color. So like Texas A&M colors. Um, right on the seam of the right side of the seconds, there was a C sharp with an octave tuned into it. Um, it was about 20 cents above the fundamental or 20 cents sharp, sorry. Um, and because of it being sharp, it was interfering with the notes that are in the drum, like a, like a slight little waver. And so I showed it to Robbie and I was like, should I tune it? Because I knew where it was. Most of the time we can figure out where that little dimple in the skirt is that's causing that. The fact that it was a C-sharp five with an octave in was crazy. And I looked at Robbie and I was like, let's tune it. Let's, let's see what it does. So we put it on the uh, table, found the spot where it was, and I got a little dead blow hammer because I don't want to wreck the paint. And I'm just tapping on it to see if it's going to go up in pitch or down. And tapping on it, it started to go down in pitch. And I was like, well, let's, let's put it into tune. So I set my strobe to where we calibrate for C-sharp 5. And I knocked it right down. And the interference went away, so that wavery. What wound up happening is because of that skirt tone being perfectly in tune, the note itself just jumped. Like it got even brighter. But it's it's one of those things. So that's something I learned was, okay, if you can find that spot in the skirt that has that tone, you can manipulate that tone as long as it's within reach. There's a lot of times where you can't find the exact spot where the skirt tone is on the drum. And when that happens, a tuner is just like, ah, it's fine. Usually skirt tone doesn't bother the notes, this one it did in particular because, I, like, again, I don't know how it happened. The drum probably dropped or the barrel probably dropped, and it just it made the perfect dimple for that particular frequency because there was an octave tuned in it already. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing the, the number of things that you can discover just through playing with different notes. Um, I remember I, I you know, was there, you know, a few years back, I think it was 2016 or 2017. Um, and, uh, or no, maybe even before that 2015. And I was talking with mm -hmm. Ellie and he was explaining how he had figured out how to make the bass pans resonate more by etching yeah. uh, a figure eight on the side. And I thought, wow, what a unique thing to like, you really have to really play around with it and go, Hmm, let me see if I burn something on the side of the drum, if that'll help <laughs> make it Listen, you know, resonate more. What's really cool about that is um, I remember watching him tune a set of basses and he was tuning the skirt tone to the low note. All of these, this was one of these, these was like a professional set of basses that a client wanted. And, uh, they wanted Ellie to be the one to tune the basses. So basses were Ellie's like high point drum, his special drum. A lot of people think guitars are seconds. Ellie was a bass man because he was the one that wanted basses that would shake your chest when they play. You know, that thunderous boom where no matter how loud you lay into the bass drum, it just gets louder. It doesn't buckle and start to bark back at you. It just gets louder in tone. And I remember walking in on the shop and he was tuning the basses in his room and Robbie was in the room watching him. He had the drum, the, the whole barrel on the side on the floor. He was sitting on the barrel and he was burning the, uh, the rings that the barrel have, uh, reinforcement rings, I guess is what you would call them. And I was asking him, I was like, what are you doing? And he was working on a B-flat bass, and he said, I'm tuning the skirt tone to the B-flat. And I was like, what does that do? And he said, watch. So he, you know, he's making these little burn spots, you know, color change in the drum and quenching them as he goes. And 
then he takes a base mallet he's listening to the skirt and uh he'll take a hammer and he's finding that spot and he hits it hearing it again burning a little spot and then when he finally gets into the pitch he has robbie and i lift the drum back up and put it on its uh bass feet and then he retunes uh the three notes b flat b flat and f um and then he plays it again and man that drum just it just like vibrated the whole room because he had awards all over on the wall they shook the awards on the wall <laughs> and i was like damn ellie like whose bass is that <laughs> that's amazing yeah i and i couldn't even imagine I mean, I got to hear those pans that he he was showing me, and and those things were like they had the power of like a whole set of bases that I'd heard at other schools. You know, it was pretty impressive. But well, very yeah, cool. Man, well, why don't we take a short break and and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this, and then uh, a little bit about um, the proper way to order pans and and uh, purchase them and whatnot. Sounds good, man. Hey everybody, it's Dave with DII. Hey, I want to let you know that I have steel drum tuning service available. Go to davesislandinstruments.com and check it out. I've been working on steel drums and building steel drums for 25 plus years. Started back in the 1990s. I'm located here again in Lakewood, California. If you need any tuning service for your steel drums, let me know. We also have hand pans and ukuleles here at the store. Check it out. See you soon. davesislandinstruments.com All right, we're back now uh, with Ryan Roberts. We were just talking about um, his work with Ellie Minette. Um, uh, one, one thing, just to kind of conclude with that topic, I just want to ask you, um, is there any one thing that was really surprising that that people would be surprised to hear about Ellie and what he was like personality-wise or what he was like to work with? Anything that really stood out to you uh, from your memories of working with him? Um, he never stopped. He, up until the last year in 2018, when his health started to decline, he wouldn't stop working. And it was very inspirational to me to see that because this is a 90-year-old man who's been perfecting this thing from the beginning. And he was so, I don't want to say obsessed because I don't think that's the right word to use but he had so much dedication to pushing the instrument that he was addicted to it he was addicted to seeing how far can this drum go you know how far can steel pan go in development because it's not even 100 years old and to see how far it's gone not in just quality of how it sounds but where it's played, it's played in every major country and continent in the world. And he, he just enjoyed seeing that. He would see on YouTube, he'd be on YouTube a lot at the shop too. When he would take his breaks, he would be on YouTube either listening to classical music, opera music, or he'll watch pan videos. Um, and every now and then I'll email him or I'll text him while we're at the shop, pan videos. Like I remember showing him some panorama tunes in Trinidad and in New York. Um, I showed him the, the steel bands I was in when I played in panorama in New York and showed him the music and he would listen to it. And then we would, I would see him watching like Japan panorama and just be happy to see that there's even steel pan out there and i think that was another thing that kept him going and it was it just amazed me how even at his age he would come into work and go right to work he would come check on us all of us in our rooms one at a time he'd make his rounds really um a couple times a day before he goes and does whatever he's working on because Ellie, he would have so much work in his room. He would pick and choose each day. I'm going to work on this drum. Well, today I'm going to work on this one. And that would be one reason why it would take such a while to get a drum from him. But he would 
pick on each one. And every time he'd pick on them, they get better and better. And he would do that till like two in the morning. I remember one night we were there about two, three in the morning. And I think it was Chandler. I was like, yeah, I think it's time to call it a night. You know? <laughs> Cause we were there about six, seven hours. And all he could, th even on the ride home, if I would give him a ride home or if Chandler did, uh, even on the car ride home, he would talk about work. He would talk about, I think I know what I need to do to that note. Um, a nice little short story about that. So my first tuning lesson with Ellie when I was here, like very first, um, he was poking at one of his personal sets of guitars that he would play at gigs. Uh, the, the story I got, because I didn't see it happen, was he dropped one of them and it fell and the low G note went completely out. And so that was the tuning lesson was I was watching him retune this low G from scratch. And he's, you know, like I said, he's telling me algebra trig. I don't even know basic algebra yet, but I'm just listening because I'm like, Ellie Manette's telling me how to tune a drum. So I'm just listening and He's working on this note for about an hour and a half and cannot get it to what it sounds like or what he wants it to sound like. And he finally was like, all right, we'll come back to it later. And that's when he explained to me how as a tuner, you have to learn to get up and walk away when you can't figure it out. So like, even to this day, if I'm tuning a note and after the first 15 minutes maybe 10 minutes if i can't if i can't get it to where i want it to sound i have to put my hammer down go walk away you know drink some coffee go play on a set of drums in another room just take that mental break and so with that low g note on the guitars his mental break was we're going to work on something else and then we'll come back to that note later later that night when it was time to take him home you know, we were talking about what he uh, was showing me that day and dropped him off. 20 minutes later, when I finally make it home, I get a text from Ellie saying, I know what to do to that. Note. <laughs> like, even when I dropped him off at home and he's supposed to just unwind for the night, he is still thinking about that note. And sure enough, next day, we go in, five minutes, done. <laughs> And like that, that just shocked me is as how he was so dedicated to not only figuring out how to tune better than what he's doing. It was, he called it a day. He didn't get frustrated. Something that I had to learn the hard way because, you know, in the beginning you get frustrated, you throw things when you because crack a drum or you fatigue a note to where it just it has no tension whatsoever he didn't get frustrated he went home he thought about it came back the next day and did exactly what he thought was the best thing for the drum and within five minutes he fixed it and the what the issue was was the second octave was flat and because of that high partial that really high partial that we tune short access wise so up near the rim um it caused the note to not sound clear and the reason he didn't hear that second octave is because after working on that note for a little over an hour he stopped hearing that high note you get mentally fatigued tuning um it was like i was saying earlier to you um Four hours of tuning to me is like an eight-hour workday on my feet. You get so mentally tired because you're, your mind's going a million miles a minute. I fully understand why Ellie would look so exhausted some days. Some days he'd stay home for a day or two before coming back to the shop because of how much he tried tuning a drum, getting it to where he wanted it to, but he would just be so mentally drained. And uh, it's it's one of those things that I just found amazing about him was he just kept going until his health finally you know took him down slowly
And I imagine one of the things that really wears you out is that that audio fatigue, right? Just from hearing it, just constantly yeah. and hearing, hearing those higher frequencies just wears you out. It does. So I tune with earmuffs on the whole time. So those, those earmuffs you see like uh, people in warehouses wear. I rarely take them off at all. And we all wear hearing protection at the shop. So whether we're tuning or building or if Heath's in the sound booth sinking a drum, even if I'm out walking around, I still have my headphones on because our hearing is our biggest asset. But even in the beginning, I would keep those headphones on the whole time. And what that wound up doing is enhancing my hearing, if that's a good way to put it. Um, so I can hear all those high frequencies with that on. So if I try to tune with like one of them off, it's just like screaming in my ear. Um, but you are right. Hearing all those high frequencies for hours with breaks in between, you know, five, 10 minute coffee breaks or something. Um, you, you just get so tired and it, it, you can feel it after a while. Um, I know I now have like a schedule when I go into the shop. So if I, let's say I've got a drum that's ready to tune, like I've already bubbled up all the notes and shaped them in the direction I want them to be in terms of octave points. And they're all spot burned. They're ready to take a hammer and just start going on day one of tuning. I'll do two rough passes on the rim notes. And that's it. I will not back in the day when I was trying to learn this as a beginner, I would try to push myself to do as many notes as I possibly can. And what that would end up doing is I would end up working on a note too much to fatigue and then Ellie would have to go in and fix it. So you have to do what you think you have to figure it out where your limit is on tuning and building. Um, you have to know where that cutoff point is, because if you go beyond that cutoff point, then the risk of making a mistake or risking of messing up the drum in any way starts to get higher. So it's, I definitely learned with Ellie that you have to learn to walk away <laughs> at a certain time, because when that metal fatigue or not, sorry, not metal fatigue, but when that hearing fatigue and mental fatigue kicks in, you, you have to stop um, or you will potentially um, mess up the drum in any way. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And uh, thanks for that insight. I think it's really helpful for people to have an understanding of what it takes to build pens. Yeah. And, and from that, I'd like to segue into my next question, which is, um, how you know, what, what advice can you give someone who is um, interested in, in purchasing steel pens? And uh, in terms of, you know, what, what the proper order of operations is for that, what the proper etiquette mm -hmm. is, um, how does one actually go about ordering? And what can they expect once they place an order? So um do you want to do like for an individual order or like a school order like a multi way, i mean whatever order. yeah whichever way i mean we can do both i mean we can tackle. okay so for individual the majority of builders and at least in the united states i can't confirm this this is just based on how our shop runs we don't have drums on hand like ready to ship we can never keep up with the demand to have an inventory it's 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 a dream we've had forever because it's so much easier to have one of us build up an inventory of leads and doubles and then just have those on standby so if if like you hit me up and go hey ryan i need a, a chrome lead how long will it take i've got one i'll ship it out in three days um we just don't have that ability because the way it seems to work is let's say I had extra time to build a lead before I sink it, it'll be sold. There's going to be a client that randomly hits up the shop and be like, I need a lead. And they'll go, okay, Ryan, you got a lead to build. Well, now I just have a list. Um, so majority of us, at least in the United States don't have an inventory. So it's all made to order 99% of the time, uh, typical turnaround time also depends on how long of the production list the shop or builder has. Um, 
if I don't have anything to build or tune right now, and I'm going to build Ted a drum, if you want a chrome drum, I would say three months. Um, three to six months, because uh, another issue is clients, I always tell them, once your drum is at the chromer, it's out of my hands in terms of ETA, because I've had drums up at the chromer for months because they get backlogged. The majority of chromers that pan makers use um, their main uh, clients are like car parts. So, and it's all first come first serve. And a lot of chromers, they may chrome on like Mondays and Tuesdays and then copper plate Wednesdays and Thursdays. And then whatever they're doing for clean the tanks on Fridays and they're off Saturday and Sunday. So if you have a bunch of auto parts that need to be chromed as well as drums, you may be waiting a couple weeks before your drums dipped. But typical turnaround time for me, if I was to get a new drum order, I usually have about four to five instruments on my list at all times. Um, the lowest it's ever been was two. So I usually try to tell people about eight to 12 months is, seems to be the typical turnaround time for any maker in the United States <clears throat> for a single order. Um, for the pro drums or the builder's top quality drums, um, I would say 12 to 24 months. Um, that's what I would tell anyone because the longer you let the tuner spend with your drum, the better the drum will be at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. What kind of deposit um, is, is typically in terms of percentage that can a person expect to place on, on a drum when they place an order? Um, usually it's either 40% or 50% as the deposit. Um, that is what covers the pay for the builder and cost of materials. Um, and then the remaining balance is both profit and whatever bills are left over, you know, chroming, painting. Uh, equipment, chemicals for cleaning the drums, etc. What What would you say is like the number one no no to do if you're going to order a pan that maybe you've experienced or some kind of you know issue that that comes up where people um, really shouldn't be doing but they do anyways because they just don't know any better. <laughs> um, order it and forget it. <laughs> That's my <laughs> biggest advice to people. Um, it's it's when a client orders a drum and then it's like either a weekly hit up, whether it's a text or email, Hey, where are we at? When's it going to be delivered every week? Which is why I like to, for at least individual orders, because they're easier to keep track of, to send a picture to the client of every stage the drum is at. So it keeps them in the loop of like, okay, there's where my drum is at right now. Now it's going to get grooved. Now it's going to get cut, bubbled, burned, etc. Um, but the biggest mistake I see with potential clients is they're, they're excited. They're, they're getting ready to order a, a steel pan, whether it's the first steel pan they've ever had, or it's an upgrade from an old one they have. They get antsy. They get very antsy and excited. And it's, that's cool. You know, I, I love seeing that, but it's not really good to, constantly hit up the tuner every couple of days or every week sorry it's like once a month that's one thing but like if you're hitting them up almost on a daily basis where's my drum at where's the drum at it it kind of gets a little frustrating <laughs> after a while but uh i always like to try to keep the client updated as much as possible i'll even shoot them a text saying hey i'm gonna work on your drum for a couple hours today this is what i'm gonna do and if depending on where the drum's at in the stage, whether it's tuning or building, I may send a picture or a video of like, hey, this is how your drum sounds roughed in. This is how your drum sounds before it goes to paint or chrome. This is how your drum sounds after paint or chrome. And then the final product. So what's the difficulty of working with a, with a school order compared to individual orders? Um, so from what I've seen through working at the shop, um, I don't really do the customer service side of it. So I'm kind of building and tuning, you know, majority of it's tuning as of the last six months or so, but 
I kind of stay on that side. Um, with school orders, I've found that they majority of them can't put down a deposit and they can't pay anything until the whole order is delivered. So that can sometimes put the a company in a tight bind because that means you have to put everything on credit, um, material, labor, finishes, all that stuff before you can deliver the product. Uh, so I have seen some school systems or uh, bulk orders for like community bands. I have seen school orders in them do deposits or have the ability to, but the majority of the time it seems that they can't because money is all tied up and you got to get a PO and all this kind of stuff. And you have to go against a strict timeline in most cases. Gotcha. Um, now, if uh, somebody decided that they wanted to go into a career um, building pens, first of all, like how, how much can one make uh, in this career path that, that you've chosen, whether it be just building or tuning or combination of the both? Mm -hmm. Um. It's kind of a difficult question because it, it really, like you just said, it really depends on if you're going to be a builder, if you're going to be a tuner, or if you're going to be both. Um, I've always been told and have learned that a tuner makes more money on the road than they do in the shop. And the reason for that is I could go out and tune a 14 piece band and make a couple grand in a couple days or spend 80 hours building and tuning a set of seconds and get $1,200 out of it. Um, I would, it, it's, if you want to pursue this career, um, you definitely want to find somebody you can apprentice under. Um, you have to have that dedication you have to learn how to pinch pennies at some time, you know, some moment, just because you're going to have to have a second job to support yourself, uh, especially if you're apprenticing, because I would assume wherever you apprentice from, uh, you, you're, it's not going to be a paid internship. It, it definitely wasn't for me. In the beginning, the majority of income I got was from a retail job that I got a long time ago, part-time, and then went full-time, and then went part-time again. Um, I was making stands, pipe stands. So the, the Manette instruments, famous pipe stands, um, we would make them in batches. Probably we would sell a batch of them about every three months or so. So we'd make batch of 20, uh, and that would take all day. You're cutting the pipe, you're cleaning the cut area, you're bending it. You're making sure that the bend is perfect. Cause there's like a little graph that we use to put up against then you got to get the screws and all that stuff and put it all together so it can be assembled easily by the client um and it's going to be like that for the first couple of years i would assume um and then that's where you're you're dealing with that whole balancing act of i need to be at the shop to learn this craft but i need to make money and a living as well so you have to find that balancing act of when can I go and learn how to sync a drum or when can I go and learn how to groove a drum today versus can I find a job that has a fixed availability schedule so I can kind of balance it all out. Um, that was something I had to learn too. And it's, it's definitely difficult, very frustrating at times because you know, you'll be at your other job and just being frustrated because it's like, why am I here? You know, this, this is not what I moved here for. This is, I moved here to learn how to do this craft, but I'm here asking people how their meal was or, you know, <laughs> but it's for someone who wants to seriously go into the craft, I'm talking, they've made the decision where they want to, go down the career path of making steel pans find a good apprentice or find a good uh maker who is open to bringing on an apprentice to tune and build develop that uh relationship with them to where they eventually hire you as an employee that can do work for them whether it's building building and tuning or building tuning and build accessories and then 
over time, as your skill develops, you start to do more with that maker, which means more money could be coming in for you. And then you will finally get to the point of you're making a living making drums. But to make a decent living, I would say a pan maker makes a lot more of a decent living on the road. That's why you see a lot of tuners do like a road trip where they, they'll post on social media, here's my fall tuning trip. I'll be in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, then move up to Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Ohio, and then kind of wrap around, almost like how a band goes on tour. Um, you'll see tuners do that once or twice a year. That's where the majority of their income really comes from. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I think it's going to wrap that up. Um, uh, for those who are interested in learning more about what Ryan does, maybe purchase, you know, place an order with him. Uh, I know he's eager to, to get started on uh, making some base pans. Have you got base pan orders? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, in general, um, if they're interested, uh, where can they reach you? Through ManetteInstruments.com? Yes, sir. Uh, just hit up the, there's a tab on the website for contacting where you just put your name, phone number, email address, shipping address, if you're trying to place an order and then a comment and we'll get back to you within a day or two. Okay, great. Yeah. So, so make sure to, to do that if you're interested and, in, or if you, you just have questions about it, I'm sure Ryan or any of the other uh, impressive builders at Manin Instruments be happy to take your questions, but uh, yeah, this has been a very enlightening, very interesting talk and I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really had a good time. The world of steel pan is a big place. If you want to immerse yourself in the trends, culture, and people, you'll need a guide. That's where Pan Magazine comes in. From profiles on people, bands, and events, to a shop full of merchandise, and tips on how to up your game as an independent steel pan artist, Pan Magazine has everything you need to help you keep up with the steel pan world. Visit www.pan-mag.com and sign up for our email newsletter today.